From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad, bringing global issues home to you. It appears that the, there is more and more fire and smoke. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That looks like a second plane. September 11, 2001, changed the world and marked a turning point for U.S. intelligence agencies such as the CIA. Four days after those terrorist attacks, Vice President Dick Cheney spoke on NBC's Meet the Press about how America would have to adjust its strategies to fight the enemy. We also have to work, though, sort of the the dark side, if you will. We've got to spend time in the shadows and in the intelligence world. Um, A lot of what needs to be done here will have to be done quietly, without any discussion, using sources and methods uh, that are available to our intelligence agencies, uh, if we're going to be successful. Uh, That's the world these folks operate in. And uh, so it's going to be vital for us to to use any means at our disposal, basically, to, uh, to achieve our objective. The last 15 years represent a new era for our intelligence operations, says Michael Hayden. He was the director of the National Security Agency on September 11th. He later led the CIA between 2006 and 2009. As the enemy changes, as the adversary changes, your tactics have to change. Frankly, the the, the core enemy now, the one that consumes most energy, isn't a nation state. It's a sub-state actor, be it al-Qaeda or ISIS, maybe even down to individuals. A second framework within which you have to operate is technology. Uh, Those communications that used to be in the clear are now encrypted. So that makes it more difficult to collect that kind of intelligence. And finally, American law or policy has changed. We've changed some of the parameters under which NSA collects. The president has issued guidance about which foreign leaders we may or may not target for intelligence collection. So this is always changing. On today's program, how spying has changed with new technology and how it's remained the same. And we'll find out how intelligence is gathered against terrorists who operate all over the world. To begin, we'll go to spy headquarters. Washington, D.C. is a spy capital of the world. There's not even a real close second. That's Vince Houghton. I'm the historian and curator of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. We did the math. We actually took the estimated number of foreign officers in D.C. and divided it by the square mileage of D.C. And we came up with a number that says you're statistically guaranteed to be within 200 feet of an officer of a foreign government at any one point in D.C. So if you walk to a street corner and look all four ways, you're probably looking at a foreign spy. Yes, spying is thriving, both in real life and in pop culture. Welcome to the International Spy Museum. Please proceed to the identity area where you will select your cover. Currently, the museum is featuring an exhibit looking at a half century's worth of Bond villains filled with movie props like Goldfinger's golf shoes. What's your game, Mr. Bond? My game? You didn't come here to play golf. But ask Vince Houghton which artifact in the museum excites him most, and he'll take you to a quaint room that looks like an 18th century parlor. In the corner is a display case, overlooked by most visitors, but when Houghton reaches it, his eyes light up as he spots a 239-year-old letter. The author? George Washington. The recipient? A revolutionary named Nathaniel Sackett. The letter to Sackett was to create the first ever American intelligence organization during the Revolutionary War. It's really the beginning of everything. And you could argue you wouldn't have the CIA today without this letter. And you could argue, I'd say as strongly, 
that you might not have America today. But of course, the art of espionage existed long before the United States was created. Houghton calls spying the world's second oldest profession. Very little has changed when it comes to tradecraft. Technology has dramatically changed. But for the most part, human intelligence is still conducted in very similar ways as it does going back thousands of years. You want to find somebody with information. You want to convince that person to give you that information. And you want to do it as secretly as you possibly can. We wanted to learn more about how this has played out in real life. So we called up Jana Mendez. She served in the CIA for 25 years. She began her career in the late 1960s as a secretary. But after she grew bored, her boss encouraged her to take some of the agency's espionage courses. We were like the queue for CIA. We had audio bugs. We had disguises. We had concealments. We had secret writing. We had, oh, it was just endless. We had all the gadgets. After some training, she became a whiz at spy photography. One of her most treasured pieces of equipment is on display at the Spy Museum, where she's a founding member. If you see the camera in the spy museum, it's smaller than your thumb. And then if you extrapolate and say, what would a film cassette look like inside of that camera? They're very, very small. And then you think about somebody has to hand load the film on the cartridges in the dark using infrared goggles. It just went on and on and on. It was very complicated. But more actionable intelligence came out of those small cameras than any satellite system we ever had, because those cameras were collecting the minutes of the meeting, the agenda before the meeting. The intelligence community is looking for plans and intentions of our enemies. I mean, that's, if you really, really boil it down, that's what you want. What are they going to do? Mendez later went on to work in the field and became the CIA's chief of disguises. She helped train officers on how to handle every imaginable encounter. Mendez told me another one of her tasks was teaching officers how to recruit someone to work for them. When I used to teach courses, I would ask my students, what would it take to get someone to turn you? Would they offer you money? Would that be enough for you to work for another country? Mm. Could they offer you some sort of status, some sort of what would they have to give you to get you to turn? And most of them would say, nothing could make me do that. That's kind of the starting point for the case officers. Yeah. Well, so everybody has a point where they would turn. Is that what you've discovered? Everyone has a weakness. We all have weaknesses. And most of us have thought about it. We kind of know what they are. In the intelligence community, there's a mnemonic for that, and it's MICE, M-I-C-E. It's money, ideology, compromise, or ego. And that's a really rudimentary way to break it down, but it actually works. Most of the biggest American spy cases in the last 20 years, 30 years, have been about money. If you look at Bob Hansen, the FBI guy who gave away everything, it was ego. He hadn't been promoted by the FBI. He discovered that he could pull this off and not one of his colleagues would know what he had done. And that gave him great satisfaction. Compromise, mm, someone's having an affair, that could be used against them. Someone's using drugs, that could be used against them. Do you think that these, the mice technique, do you think that these techniques are in effect now? And do you think that they're effective now that the Cold War is over? Oh, yes, they are. 
and the Cold War may be over, but espionage is never going to be over. Espionage is alive and well um, and very, very active. And you think they're using the same techniques to turn people? It's not, it's not so much techniques. It is, it's an approach to what are the failings of the, of the human population around the world? Where are they vulnerable? And those are areas, they're always going to be vulnerable in those areas. Various people will run out of money. Various people will have ego problems. If you need the information badly enough, You'll explore all of these areas to see if there's room for some leverage. And what about the gadgets? Those must have changed. Oh, the gadgets will have changed enormously. They changed while we were there. My little camera, the one I'm so proud of, would be a digital camera now, which means it would be even smaller. And what would it be in? Would it be in a Montblanc fountain pen? No, it would be in a button. The whole point is it could be anywhere. And so the opposition, how do you defend against something that can be that small? You can't. Donna Mendez is a retired CIA intelligence officer. She's co-author of the book Spy Dust, among others. And it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. While the basic craft hasn't changed, how America uses its spies has shifted dramatically over the past 15 years. That's how Michael O'Hanlon sees it. He's a senior fellow in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution and co-director of their Center on 21st Century Security and Intelligence. After 9-11, turned out the CIA armed its own drones before the Air Force even got around to that. And the CIA wound up through small teams of field operatives being just as crucial to the evolution of our Afghanistan war plan in the period after 9-11 as any part of the U.S. military. It wasn't like there was a conscious decision to turn most CIA analysts into Tom Cruise or James Bond. But the question is, do you live with that now or do you try to walk it back? You can argue that the CIA is becoming a paramilitary organization. Mel Goodman is a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy and a 24-year veteran of the CIA. He's also a critic of the agency. He wrote a book called Failure of Intelligence, The Decline and Fall of the CIA. It wasn't created that way in 1947 by Harry Truman, but in the wake of 9-11, it has become a paramilitary organization with tremendous emphasis on technical collection of intelligence and a downplaying of human intelligence or the recruitment of intelligence assets. This militarization is very unfortunate for the CIA and for the national security of the United States. But former NSA and CIA Director Michael Hayden disagrees. He says the results speak for themselves. I take the point about people who make that argument. I, in many ways, agree with them. But I also know that America is a safer place over the last 15 years because CIA has taken such an active role. Still, the question remains, what should be the limits in gaining intelligence? Under the George W. Bush administration, practices such as waterboarding were authorized in an effort to extract information from detainees overseas. His administration called these controversial techniques enhanced interrogations, though many, like President Obama, later rejected that label. In a 2011 press conference, Obama said why he banned waterboarding shortly after becoming president. Waterboarding is torture. 
It's contrary to America's traditions. It's contrary to our ideals. That's not who we are. That's not how we operate. We don't need it in order to prosecute the war on terrorism. And we did the right thing by ending that practice. Former CIA and NSA Director Michael Hayden says the results justified the actions. There's no question the agency got very valuable information from the detainees. Some people argue that the agency could have gotten the same information and not used those techniques. Uh, I'll let them argue that. We didn't have a control group. This wasn't a science experiment. We were working under a time clock to get as much information as we could as rapidly as possible. Michael Hayden and others, George Tenet, Jose Rodriguez, Kofor Black, they all say that because torture is their legacy. They want to at least be able to continue saying, well, we did it for the right reason and it worked. That's former CIA analyst John Kiriakou. In 2007, he was the first CIA official to publicly confirm and detail the agency's use of waterboarding. He was later charged with five felonies, including espionage. He took a plea deal and served 23 months in a federal prison for leaking the name of a CIA officer to a reporter. He disputes the claim that torture is necessary in the so-called ticking time bomb scenario. The problem is, is when you're torturing somebody, he's going to tell you anything that he thinks you want to hear to get the torture to stop. And it could be hours and hours of of tape. Now, you're going to turn it over to, to a team of analysts, and they're going to go through every single word that this person says to try to figure out what's true, what's not true, what's actionable. This could take weeks And by then, the bomb has gone off. Michael O'Hamlin of the Brookings Institution says this debate over waterboarding was an important moment for not only assessing what works and what doesn't, but also for clarifying the ethical boundaries for our intelligence community. I don't think there's any realistic probability whatsoever that we go back to waterboarding. You know, I think some duress may be important, but I don't think we want to cause physical pain. And more often than not, you don't even want to do any of that. You want to try to talk with, get to know, and use the more empathetic methods of intelligence gathering that I think our interrogators are very good with. Up next, how do we use technology to give us an advantage or at least catch up to our enemies who are increasingly savvy in using high tech? And how do we make sure we don't sacrifice civil liberties in the process? The question is, at the end of the day, when we think about the value of law enforcement or the value of public safety, Do we think that the value of law enforcement is on a par with the need for targeted advertisement or searchability or recovery functions? Because the problem has already been solved in that context. You're listening to Espionage in the Age of Terror on America Abroad. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Espionage in the Age of Terror on America Abroad. In recent years, the FBI and other federal law enforcement agencies have complained about a going dark problem. They say that because of warrant-proof, unbreakable encryption, criminals have a new advantage. The issue came to a head earlier this year in the San Bernardino terrorism case that pitted the Department of Justice against Apple. In a lawsuit, the government claimed that it had to unlock a dead suspect's iPhone and that it couldn't do that on its own. Well, the feds ultimately were able to get into the phone. They hired an unnamed third party. The case raised new questions about how the government circumvents encryption. 
But as the Department of Justice works out the legal framework for what companies should and should not be required to disclose, former CIA and NSA Director Michael Hayden says the whole debate may be for nothing. It almost doesn't matter what the American Congress says or what an American court might decide. It's just going to be harder for law enforcement or intelligence to get to the content of intercepted communication. So my advice is get over that. Live with it. It doesn't mean that electronic surveillance has lost all utility. There's still a lot out there. It's just not the content of the communication. And it seems like in at least one high-profile case, that's what law enforcement has done. Within the last few years, the federal government was able to beat the world's biggest and most technically advanced underground drug website, mainly by using old-fashioned police work. Sarus Faravar brings us the story of the Silk Road bust and how it may represent the future of cracking criminal networks. Momi Toby's Revolution Cafe and Art Bar isn't exactly where you'd expect a criminal mastermind to spend his time. It's a bustling place with an old wooden bar replete with beer taps, funky art on the walls, and big jars of cookies on the counter. It's about a half mile west of San Francisco's Gold Dome City Hall. There's even a German beer garden nearby. But Momi Toby's was where Ross Ulbricht basically ran Silk Road for about two years, until he was arrested at a library in 2013, just a few miles from here. Now to that stunning arrest of the drug kingpin who goes by the name Dread Pirate Roberts. The FBI calls it the most sophisticated criminal marketplace on the Internet. It was eBay for drugs with a couple of innovations. Nicholas Weaver is a senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley. He's followed the case closely, which ended with Ulbricht getting a double life sentence after being convicted of drug crimes. Ulbricht's appeal is now pending. Weaver explains why Silk Road was so hard to penetrate. It had a payment system the feds couldn't stop. The system was pseudonymous, so you could gain a positive reputation. And it acted as a escrow service and dispute resolution provider. So it basically arbitraged trust. You had to trust Silk Road, and Silk Road would ensure that the dealer would provide the product. In other words, buyers and sellers all used fake names, and Silk Road itself took a cut of every deal. Ulbricht ran his empire using the latest encryption and anonymity tools. First off, the site was only accessible via Tor, an anonymous way to browse the web. Drugs and other wares were priced in Bitcoin, a difficult-to-trace digital currency. Many people communicated using encrypted email, and Ulbricht himself encrypted his laptop. Court documents say Silk Road sold $1.2 billion worth of drugs and illegal services in just under three years. When federal law enforcement first tried to approach Silk Road, they didn't really know how. It was unlike any other digital case anyone had ever seen. And so for two years, they tried everything. You had law enforcement infiltrate as admins. You had law enforcement take over admin accounts. You had law enforcement get corrupt and try to steal a lot of money. But in the end, what broke the case was a combination of diligent police work and a bit of hacking. Eventually, the site was infiltrated by at least three federal agents. And once they started establishing patterns of behavior, they started physically surveilling him, too. In the end, the bus came when agents had followed Ulbricht to a library. There, a man and a woman, working undercover, staged an argument right behind Ulbricht. When he turned around to see what was going on... They tackled him with the computer open, and this broke the case wide open. The cops found a treasure trove of information about Silk Road. The best part? 
they found an extensive diary going back years of how Ulbricht started and operated Silk Road. Because he forgot the rule number one of criminal conspiracies. You don't make notes on a criminal bleeping conspiracy. Seizing the computer while it was open and running was crucial. By doing that, all of Ulbricht's fancy encryption was worthless. While the Ulbricht case represents a major victory for law enforcement, increasingly the FBI and other agencies are concerned that encryption is giving criminals the upper hand, and so they argue companies should be compelled to have a means for law enforcement to access encrypted data. This is FBI Director James Comey speaking in October 2014. Unfortunately, the law has not kept pace with technology, and this disconnect has created the significant public safety problem we have long described as going dark. And what it means is this. Those charged with protecting our people aren't always able to access the evidence we need to prosecute crime and prevent terrorism, even with lawful authority. The issue gained new importance after the mass shooting in San Bernardino last year. The government tried to force Apple to create an entirely new operating system to open up the locked iPhone used by a dead terrorist. But Catherine Crump, a law professor at the University of California, Berkeley, doesn't believe warrant-proof encryption is making us less safe. She points to all the other information readily available to law enforcement. In reality, the government actually has access to far more information about what each of us says and does than it has ever had before. Um, That's not to say there isn't some information that the government can't access. But far from going dark, this is a golden age for law enforcement. For example, in the San Bernardino case, Crump notes the government had all kinds of access to the shooter's phone records and information backed up to Apple's iCloud. Yet that service, which many people use to store messages, photos, and more, is a prime example of why the FBI and other agencies think Apple is being disingenuous when it says it can't build a secure encryption system with a so-called backdoor access for warrants. Because they figure, if Apple can build secure access for itself into the cloud, surely it can find a way to do that for its iPhone. So the question is not really, is it technically feasible to build a solution of this type? David Bitkower is a deputy assistant attorney general at the Department of Justice. He points out that Apple has designed iCloud in such a way that they can hand over data to the government if needed. Similarly, the way that Google makes money is by running ads against your private email and your searches. For Bitkower, the bottom line is simple. The question is, at the end of the day, when we think about the value of law enforcement or the value of public safety, do we think that the value of law enforcement is on a par with the need for targeted advertisement or searchability or recovery functions, because the problem has already been solved in that context. But many civil libertarian advocates like Crump think that the encryption debate is practically moot. Strong warrant-proof encryption is getting easier to use and is becoming more widespread as lawmakers are struggling to come up with their own answer. In the Silk Road case, law enforcement was able to legally access the server's hidden IP address overseas, It's a technique that will soon likely be expanded to allow magistrate judges to authorize searches anywhere in the country. Currently, those judges can only sign off on searches within their own districts. In turn, that makes it easier for law enforcement to eliminate the anonymity of suspected criminals and terrorists online. In the end, Silk Road may be the template for how law enforcement defeats strong encryption. Rather than targeting what is being said, they're looking to find out who is saying it and where. That way they can deploy human agents to physically nab the bad guys. For America Abroad, I'm Sarus Paravar in San Francisco. (laughs) 
So if cracking encryption is not an option for law enforcement, what high-tech tools have been developed and how are they helping us take down criminals? To answer that, we've called Herb Lynn. He researches cyber policy and security at Stanford. Welcome to the program. Hi there. Well, Michael Hayden said earlier in the program, he's the former CIA and NSA director, he said that it'll be harder, if not impossible, for law enforcement to break encryption. Do you agree with him Uh on that? Well, it depends on what you mean by encryption. It's certainly possible to develop codes that nobody can break. Um, Even if you had all the computers in the world and you let them run for the age of the universe, you couldn't break the encryption. So that part is true, but that doesn't mean there's no way to get at what the bad guys are saying uh, through other techniques. Let's say there's an encrypted message that you want to send to me. If there's, for example, a program that's running on your device that is capturing your keystrokes, then those keystrokes can be shunted off to the side and then I can reproduce what you said. Similarly, when I receive the encrypted message, at some point you have to decrypt it. Between the point of decryption and the time that it appears on my screen, maybe I can figure out a way of looking at that information. Now, is all of this harder? Absolutely. It's much harder than any other way to do it, um, but it's still possible. We did a report on the Silk Road case, and that was cracked through a mixture of high-tech hacking and basic old-fashioned police work. Is that the most effective hybrid, do you think? And is that what we're going to see going forward? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The old-fashioned police work with uh, information technology, social media, whatever, providing additional sets of clues. Well, do you think that this will be the way that we gather information in the future, that because there seems to be maybe not a limit, but we're pushing the envelope when it comes to the ability of surveillance and breaking encryption, that really law enforcement will go back to old-fashioned policing more. I think that's one of the tragedies of the way in which the debate has unfolded. Tragedy is too strong a word, but the, quote, old-fashioned ways have never gone out of style. They're always doing that. Mm-hmm. Now, are some of the features that the uh, vendors want to put out going to make life in some cases more difficult for law enforcement? Absolutely. There's no question about that. But cars made it harder for law enforcement too, right, for bank robbers. Before they had to gallop away on a horse or they had to run away. Now they can just drive in 10 times the speed. So, yes, there are things that will go on technologically that will make life for law enforcement harder. Will law enforcement adapt? Well, we'll see. Are they keeping up? Not well. By contrast, the national security establishment is keeping up much better with all of this stuff. They've been willing and able to make the investment in the technological capabilities. Law enforcement, less so. They don't have the the resources to do nearly the job that the national security community has done. Herb Lynn is a senior researcher on cyber policy and security at Stanford University. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Of course, the United States isn't the only country grappling with how to integrate new technology. This March, 32 people died. More than 300 were injured in terrorist attacks on the Brussels airport and subway system. Intelligence officials discovered the perpetrators had either grown up or had been living in Belgium and had become radicalized. Some had gone back and forth to Syria to fight and train with the Islamic State. The cell was also linked to the Paris attacks in November of 2015. 130 people died in those attacks. Terry Schultz reports from Brussels on the latest efforts by Belgian intelligence to combat this new threat. Belgium was declared a failed state by some in the media. 
because its intelligence and law enforcement services had not stopped the terrorist network, despite having had some of its members under surveillance, even under lock and key in the past. But counterterrorism analyst Thomas Rinard with Belgium's Egmont Institute notes that in the early days of the foreign fighter phenomenon, things weren't as clear as they are now. And he says Belgium's intelligence service was actually more vigilant than it's given credit for. As long as there is not an attack, it remains sort of underground work. When something happens, it's always the fault of the intelligence services. And then uh, they are being uh, pointed as not having done enough. And it's very difficult. Still, in the case of the Brussels attacks, two of the suicide bombers, brothers, both had criminal records and had been released early on parole. A week after the attacks, I interviewed Belgian Interior Minister Jan Bon and asked him about that. We live in a democracy. There is a separation between the powers, and the judicial power is a separate power. And, and I can't criticize it. But according to me, someone who has done these criminal acts, that he can get free after less than half of his punishment, I, I have a lot of questions about that, yes. But Yambon emphatically rejects the failed state notion. I don't accept the criticism on that. Every country had some attacks, and in every country, the professional security services and police services didn't saw them coming. These are well-trained fighting machines. They know the communication techniques. They know how to use mobile phones. So sometimes you catch them, and sometimes they catch you. To help his officers do more of the catching, Yambon pushed hard after the Paris attacks to enact new laws. For example, until just a few months ago, house searches could not be done between the hours of 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. So the criticism went, the terrorists just waited till dark to do their dirty work. Law enforcement officials also now have expanded powers to wiretap suspects. Alain Vinance, who spent 10 years at the helm of the intelligence agency, notes that Belgium's wiretapping laws were extremely strict until 2010, but he says that wasn't all bad. One of the paradoxes of the Belgian service was that since we didn't have the possibility of using special methods uh, until 2010, we had to focus our attention on human intelligence, and we are known by other services for the quality of the human sources. And just because you can eavesdrop on anyone doesn't mean you should. Europeans are still sore over the 2013 revelations by former CIA contractor Edward Snowden that the U.S. National Surveillance Agency was wiretapping European Union institutions in Brussels and its closest allies, such as German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Binance faced accusations from his own government that he had known about the NSA spying and covered it up, which he denies. He says the practice was inappropriate. I think that's a bridge too far, and it wasn't very good for the uh, atmosphere between services. Vinance understands the desire for surveillance data, especially since the costs of gathering human intelligence are so high. There's no just flipping a switch. Human sources uh, need to be, you need to find them, you need to recruit them, you need to educate them, you need to pay them. So it's difficult. And the human source, of course, at a certain moment has its limits. But what can be learned through human eyes and ears may prove to be the most effective weapon against the greatest threat facing Europe today, 
radicalized citizens becoming homegrown terrorists. Counterterrorism officials are dependent on and desperate for information from inside vulnerable communities that could preempt violence. Thomas Grignard explains. What we need is more measures for collecting intelligence. That means using more local police, using more social workers, people who know the neighborhood and can spot early signs of radicalization. However, Renard says, too many tips can also be counterproductive. The problem we have is not the lack of information, it's the abundance of information. And the thing is, every information that you get, you have to check it, because if one of them were true and you didn't check it, then it's a huge failure. So you need to find a right balance without overloading the system. That includes information shared among governments, and that's where NATO is taking on a new role. Until now, the alliance hasn't had its own intelligence function. But the ongoing threat from an increasingly aggressive Russia, the dangerous sophistication of cyber attacks, and the huge challenge posed by the Islamic State have convinced NATO to create the position of an assistant secretary general for intelligence. Former State Department No. 3 Nick Burns served as the U.S. ambassador to NATO in Brussels from 2001 to 2005. Now a Harvard professor, Burns applauds the new position, hoping it will help streamline information and use it wisely. Defense in the modern age is a function, obviously, of your military strength, but also your ability to counter terrorism, your ability to be smart about intelligence and have intelligence capacity. But despite all the new capacities Belgium's intelligence service has, former spy chief Alain Vinance is almost wistful about something he says can never be bestowed by a budget or a change in laws. A big absence of culture of intelligence, a feeling for intelligence business, uh, interest for intelligence business. James Bond never could be a Belgian. For America Abroad, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. You're listening to Espionage in the Age of Terror on America Abroad. Up next, what pop culture gets right and what it gets wrong about spying. The more boring the movie or TV show, the more realistic it tends to be. Visit our website for images, extended interviews, and more. We're at PRI.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Espionage in the Age of Terror on America Abroad. Three years ago, Holly Taylor knew as much about spying as any typical American 15-year-old, which is to say, not much. When I hear spies, I thought of, um, there was one show on Cartoon Network, like Totally Spies or something, where they like ran around in like spandex suits and like did somersaults on the floor. Um, so that's usually what you picture, or just like people creeping around in black costumes. But obviously, it's very different on the Americans. The Americans is a Cold War spy drama on the TV network FX. Taylor is one of the lead actresses in the series. She plays Paige Jennings, a Northern Virginia girl whose life is shattered when she finds out her parents are really KGB spies from the Soviet Union. You're spies? We serve our country. We wanted to tell you this for such a long time. But you didn't! Taylor says she's learned a lot from being on the show about the craft of spying, but she hopes audiences learn something, too, about the level of personal sacrifice it takes to lead the life of a spy. 
I think that it's teaching the public more of the emotional side of the Cold War. I mean, the characters bring such an emotional level to it, and we see how it truly does affect their family life and their relationships with other people. Spy Museum historian and curator Vince Houghton is also a fan of the series. Because a lot of the actual gadgets and a lot of the technology that they're using, because there were, in fact, and there still are, sleeper agents in here in the United States, the difference is they wouldn't be doing so much because if you had somebody that deep undercover, you wouldn't want to jeopardize their mission by exposing them as much as they are during this show. Still, Houghton says most spy work would be too boring for mainstream audiences. My general, I get asked this question all the time, and my general response tends to be the more boring the movie or TV show, the more realistic it tends to be. He's also concerned that pop culture has distorted some of the history. The public perception is somewhat problematic for here, us here at the museum. The real issue at hand was that how difficult it was to infiltrate inside the Soviet Union. The KGB was a very effective at counterintelligence. In fact, it wasn't until the late 1970s that we had an agent working for us from inside Russia itself, inside the Soviet Union. For all intents and purposes, the most successful intelligence collection work done during the Cold War was technological. It was through signals intelligence work, what the NSA is doing today. Spy novels, TV, and movies also tend to overlook the emotional toll spying can take. What if James Bond had a family? People don't usually think about that aspect, but behind every spy story and adventures and so on, there are people, there are families, there are wives and children and mothers. That's Oded Gararia. Today he teaches entrepreneurship at Adrian College in Michigan, but he grew up in Israel. A month before his 13th birthday, he discovered his father was not like most other dads. My father's name is Zev Gururia but he's better known as Wolfgang Lotz. Way back in the 60s, he was uh, Israel's, I would say, primary spy in Egypt. At that time, Egypt was known to be recruiting ex-Nazi scientists to develop weapons of mass destruction, which could then be potentially used against Israel. Lotz was given his mission. So Israel sent my father undercover as an ex-Nazi, to Egypt to infiltrate the circles of those German scientists, find out what they were doing, and then later to sabotage the program and so on. Me and my mom lived in Paris while this was going on, so he would come periodically to visit with us and visit with his bosses and so on. And it went well for about five years, and then he was caught. The Egyptian caught him. Lotz was put on trial. His life was in jeopardy. So not only was going to the trial, I couldn't talk about it with anyone. This is quite a, <laughs> quite a charge for a 16-year-old to be carrying with. And he maintained his cover through his trial. That saved his life because if they found out he was Israeli, they would have executed him. Gurarya's father was spared. He was locked up for three years before he was released in a prisoner exchange with Egypt. This is where the story of Wolfgang Lotz would normally end. But when he returned to Israel, there was a complication because he didn't go back alone. He had a German wife. Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, had known about the relationship. They didn't like it. But Lotz was such a good spy, they didn't do anything. Lutz already had an Israeli family. Mossad officials decided to hide the relationship from Gururia and his mother. For her, it was really a 
huge betrayal also from all her friends there, the, the women from the Mossad that she interacted with who knew and never told her. But she was an amazing woman, and she continued on with her life. I was really proud of her because I realized how difficult it must have been. And Guraria says even after that, his father still struggled to find happiness. Life doesn't prepare you for retirement. I guess he was less than 50 when he came back. You know, you are trained to be a spy. You don't really have any profession for, for civilian life. But you have a lot of confidence and you think you can do a lot of things. And so he got into all kinds of businesses that failed. He was going through difficult times. As we saw with Wolfgang Lutz, in order to be successful, spies have to blend in. They have to assume identities seamlessly. Today, the CIA is the world's largest intelligence agency with far-ranging missions. To be effective, it needs officers who can not only blend in but maintain their cover under intense scrutiny. But the agency is facing a diversity problem. Three-quarters of its officers are white. CIA Chief John Brennan addressed this issue in June before a Senate Select Intelligence Committee after the massacre in Orlando carried out by a shooter who had pledged allegiance to ISIS. As this committee knows, CIA recently unveiled a landmark effort to make sure that our workforce reflects in our attitudes, our backgrounds, our ethnicities, and our perspectives the nation we work so hard to defend. This is both a moral and a mission imperative. Diversity not only gives us the cultural understanding we need to operate in any corner of the globe, it also helps us avoid groupthink, ensuring we bring to bear a range of perspectives on the complex challenges that are inherent to intelligence work. But as the CIA admits, attracting a talented and diverse group to the agency's ranks can be difficult. Jennifer Strong has the story of the challenges facing today's recruiters and recruits. My name is Adrienne Rockhill, and I am an American overseas. I, I live just outside of London. I actually got a random phone call from this woman who identified herself as Wanda and that she was basically calling from the CIA. To be fair, she had given a copy of her resume to the CIA, so this wasn't completely random. I picked up the phone and she said who she was. I actually said, oh, I applied for that job months ago. And her reaction back was, we're the CIA and we're very busy. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> fair enough. Rockhill says she got the call about seven months after submitting her resume. She's African-American and grew up in the Maryland suburbs, surrounded by friends and family who work for the federal government. Under the agency's new diversity initiatives, she's just the kind of person the CIA is trying to hire. So after sort of talking to various people, um, I spoke to my father about it, and my father was like, of course you're going to go work for the CIA. Why would you not take that kind of job? Rockhill has several degrees from top-tier schools. Her private sector work had her traveling throughout Africa and the Middle East. But taking a government job would mean a big pay cut, and it could take a year to complete the hiring process. That process can be much longer for naturalized citizens, even though they are more likely to have the native language skills and cultural background the CIA needs in its efforts to fight terrorism. For her part, Rockhill decided to stay in the private sector. She says patriotism alone isn't the same motivator it was for previous generations. In a lot of ways, this generation has been disillusioned. You know, coming from an HR background, you have to then find something else to entice people. That's especially true in today's very tight labor market for technical skills. 
Organizations, public and private, all hire from the same limited pool of talent, whether it's to fight terrorism or protect data privacy. Virtually everyone needs to hire for cybersecurity, and that's but one example. And while companies like Google pay more and don't have the image problem the CIA has within African American and Muslim communities, they too have well-documented diversity problems that are proving hard to fix, in part because of who makes up the talent pool. Democratic Congressman Andre Carson is a member of the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He's also one of only two Muslims in Congress. He says diversity is critical. It's as important as having more African Americans and more Latinos in the intelligence space, not only as, as analysts, but as agents and officers, but even as contractors. And I think the same applies for those Muslims who are highly qualified. Because I think when you have a diverse intelligence community uh, that is reflective of the larger society, it makes for better intel, it makes for understanding cultural nuances. The CIA does not track the religion of its employees, and that's not unusual for the U.S. government. Not even the census tracks religion in a nation founded on religious freedom. But it's safe to say only a very tiny fraction of their workforce is Muslim. As for those labor shortages, one way to find talent is through outsourcing, but not all government work can legally be done by others. Earlier this year, Vice News published a report from the CIA's Office of Inspector General that found contractors doing jobs that, by law, must be done by staff. CIA contractors have been tasked with running some of the agency's most controversial programs, including what the government calls enhanced interrogations. Others, like Tim Shorrock, call it torture. He's the author of Spies for Hire, The Secret World of Intelligence Outsourcing. They've hired, you know, hundreds of former agents, former officers in, in places like Guantanamo, and they've hired contract psychologists to run the torture program they did in Guantanamo and uh, other places, other secret prisons. When anti-terror spending skyrocketed post-9-11, so did privatized intelligence. At one point, the L.A. Times reported the CIA had more contractors than actual staff. Recommendations for fixing the problem of contractors working outside their legal limit are redacted from that CIA report. But whatever they were, a spokesperson told Vice, all were adopted. Meanwhile, when terrorism strikes closer to home, that seems to spur people to apply for CIA jobs. That includes events such as June's mass shooting at a gay nightclub in Orlando. Ron Patrick is the CIA's deputy director of talent development. We do see huge jumps in people who want to work for us depending on world events. Certainly, that generates a huge response from the American public as well as non-American citizens who want to come work for us to help protect the United States. As for recruiting, Patrick says the CIA is unique in that they don't participate in most typical forums like social media or job boards. Applicants come to us either in person, that is through school contacts, through um, professional organizations, through minority organizations in their communities, or most typically people come to us directly via the website that we have. He says one way they grow the talent pool is through student programs. They can even start clearing people who are still in high school. The competition for very talented people has gotten very tight. So the ideal candidate for us, though, is someone who fits in well with today's approach to problem solving, today's approach to technology, today's approach to teamwork. 
and sometimes, Patrick says, they'll even take a shot at making a cold pitch to someone. There were several speakers at the conference, and one of them had the exact skill set that we're looking for for a hard-to-fill occupation. So following the presentation, we took a break. I walked up to the person and just started talking and said, hey, you know, have you ever thought about working for us? So if you have the technical chops and cultural skills to fit the mission, whether or not you drop your resume, they might just give you a call. For America Abroad, I'm Jennifer Strong. While the CIA is ramping up its recruitment, critics like former CIA analyst Mel Goodman say the agency also has an image problem. Goodman says that in the 1940s and 50s, the agency would often recruit from the Ivy League and later Big Ten schools. But that's shifted. Now, because of the crimes that the CIA has been involved in, and I'm talking about torture and abuse, I'm talking about extraordinary renditions, it's been harder to recruit the best and the brightest. And as the CIA has become more of a paramilitary organization, they're recruiting mainly from the military and also from schools that have heavy interest in military issues, such as Texas A&M. So there has been a real change. Every time you read rogue CIA does this or that, it's just not right. John McGaffin spent 30 years working at the CIA and then worked as an advisor to the FBI. McGaffin is tired of hearing the CIA and other agencies being scapegoated for following official policies. There's nothing, I've in all the years that I worked for CIA, it was 30 plus, never was there something that we were asked to do in the covert action field that wasn't fully vetted by the government, by the Congress, and by lawyers. McGaffin is concerned that lost in the debate over what the CIA and other American intelligence agencies should be doing is the gratitude the public should feel about all the work that's been done to keep them safe. That's work most of us never hear about, says former CIA and NSA director Michael Hayden. I think the American people need to know that these people don't operate under a different value system than the general American population. They just get, the CIA, NSA, and other folks, they just get to apply these common values in circumstances that most Americans will never see and about which most Americans will never know. So while the war on terror may be fought in the shadows, the debate over how our intelligence is gathered should be fought in the open. Because even if we can't see them, the actions of our spies are a direct reflection of our values as a country. You've been listening to Espionage in the Age of Terror on America Abroad. This hour was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Yael Evan Orr, with additional production help from Flan Williams and copy editing assistance from Margaret Evans. Special thanks to the website Ars Technica. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or by finding us on the Public Radio International app or by visiting our website at PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI, Public Radio International.